Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the official Tennis.com podcast featuring professional coach and community leader, Kamal Murray. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm your host, Kamal Murray, and we have the pleasure today of chatting with Leslie Allen. Uh, Leslie Allen is a legend in the game. She was playing post Althea, pre-Zena Garrison. Uh, she's a pioneer, a mentor, a mother, auntie to many. One of the people that I lean on for advice. So when I'm having a hard time, I make that late night phone call to, and she either give you a kick in the butt or a pat on the back. So everybody, let's welcome Leslie Allen to the show. Leslie, how's it going? Hey, Kamal. I'm so excited to be here. And yeah, I guess I do every now provide <laughs> a kick in the butt, but I also give virtual hugs as well uh, yeah you know you got that softer side now that softer side comes with a lecture you know you're not you're not gonna just give it you know you, it's gonna come with a lecture but you, yeah. <laughs> you've been known to be that I always used to tell my players that if every player needs a soft place to land yeah right uh really don't lose and, and Leslie you know you've been my soft place to land on, on some of those hard days overseas <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> you just try and I try and give perspective um, because I know that's what got me through when I was probably in those same shoes, feeling so frustrated. Yeah, and perspective is interesting. You said that word because I think that you know the perspective comes from just your history in the game, right, mm -hmm. and sort of your experience and seeing how the tour has evolved, how tournaments has evolved, how the athletes have evolved, the player, the money, everything. And I think that knowledge and that perspective is what allows you to sort of always be calm, always uh, have a well-educated response to things that are going on in the world. Tell me your sort of perspective on how tennis was in the 70s and early 80s compared to what it has evolved to, which is now a big business. Um, well, I would say that tennis has evolved to what we dreamed about. And when I walked into the locker room, Billie Jean was there. And so she immediately told me as a player what my responsibility was. And it was to put the best product out on the court, to interact with the fans, with the media, with the sponsors, and also the, um, the politics or the organizational structure of the game. So we knew what we were doing in all phases. And so when we sat in those board meetings, um, we dreamed of players being able to make this amount of money to play in stadiums like this because the generation when I played tennis had just transitioned from being in country clubs to playing in iconic arenas like you know the forum the garden the Boston Garden that kind of a thing so um so just to see what is happening now um warms my heart and know and I know that I had something to do with that as well now, what did you all do? Because, you know, I, all the times you mentioned Billy, I talk to Billy all the time and she always talks about the work 
and how the players had to like go out there, interact with sponsors, try to like, like you said, use the word product, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of understand that this is sort of a game and it's a product and we want to sell this product. We want more people to buy it, buy tickets, buy media, et cetera. You mm -hmm. know, what, tell me some of the things that, you know, right now a lot is done for the players, right? Now right. WTA is a big organization with marketing and all this other stuff. But back then you all were sort of, the WTA, like all the board meetings, you all were sort of creating this product. Tell me the things that you all had to do. Well, firstly, the, the WTA tour board was made up of players. So that was a little bit frightening to be sitting in the room and making business level decisions. When I returned to the, to the board in the 2000s, I had much more business acumen and felt more confident in that space. But there were a couple of things that were going on in the late 70s, early 80s, even for women athletes to be professionals, to have a viable career, that was unusual. So we were a little bit of an oddity. And to normalize um, what we were doing, um, just in the greater community at large, we had to be willing to speak to the media at any time, because it was almost like, wait, somebody wants to speak to us? Okay, we'll do, we'll, we'll do the interview. You need us to do a clinic? Okay, we'll go and do the clinic. And um, you didn't have to go through channels and channels of let my people talk to your people and <laughs> that can happen. And it can only last for 59 seconds because it goes into a minute, then something else is going to happen. So um, I can remember going and doing clinics before I had matches. You know, you just, you just did what you had to do because I felt like I was building the game and the more exposure that I could get and women's tennis could get, the more viable of a product it could be seen Ergo, we could get better sponsors, more prize money, and the like. So we approached it. We were the generation that approached it of we had work to do. And then as uh, tennis began to grow, a few generations later, people got in their bubbles with their coterie, and players didn't even talk to one another, so to speak. The generation when I played, um, we practiced with one another. We didn't travel with coaches. So when we came downstairs in the, in the hotel lobby to breakfast, we sat with another player. We practiced with another player, not with a hitting partner. Um, we might give advice to one another um, because it was all about creating um, the better product. And then um, by the time I came back working as a tour manager and I would come to those same hotels and some of those events where I played and I'd look across the breakfast room and there were 20 players sitting at 20 different tables. Mm. And maybe they were with their coach or someone from their family, which meant they had the prize money in order to be able to afford that. But that interaction was lost in a direct way. And I also played before everybody wore headphones. So. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody got these iPods and these music yeah, and they in their zone. Just... You couldn't hide in your phone. You couldn't put in your earbuds. You couldn't do any of that. If there was any music playing in the in the um, locker room, it was going to be on the boom box, somebody's, and you were going to have to all listen to the same thing. So um, that also was a way that you had to connect with people because you had to talk to them. You couldn't just close them out. Well, let me ask, do you think that that sort of separation or people siloing themselves started to happen when the money got bigger? Because, you know, I always say, no matter what community you're in, right, ethnicity, race, whatever, when, uh -huh. it's, when the money starts getting bigger, people start getting real competitive, right? They're like competition level goes to a different level. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so do you think that when women's tennis started to sort of, you know, increase its brand, increase the, the prize money, is that when a division started? Or is it just a generational thing where different types of people got into the game? No, I, I don't think it was a generational thing. I think it was that because players were earning more prize money, they could afford more support with them on the road. And because we had now built this brand of women's tennis, we had more than one star. So each star kind of had their their bubble. And I think, which we know now within the WTA, um, that there was sort of a, quote, not lost generation, but we didn't do as good a job as we do now of telling players what the history of the game is, what your responsibility to the game is, what it was like for the original nine. Um, So this is your responsibility. This is your expectation. I think we were a little bit um, excited about the the celebrity that the players were generating or the the excitement they were generating, the interest that they were generating that you didn't want to say, oh, you, you may be a big thing, but I still need you to do this, you know? And so um, in subsequent years, you know, they, we built the WTA Tour built in pro U and those types of things because um, you, need to, you, you need to know the history. Mm. Now, I walk the grounds of the Grand Slams and I see a lot of folks and I'm sort of a history buff, right? My mom was actually a history teacher growing up. Uh-huh. So we, you know, I never had Sega Genesis, Nintendo, none of that stuff. It was always books, reading, yeah. you know, watching Jeopardy or listening to her speak. Um, but there are a lot of players today that don't know a lot of players of the past um, and aren't educated on the history. And I know that, you know, you talked about WTAU, right? Is, I'm not sure if it's still around. I don't even know. Yeah. Do, you, do you think that, well, I feel like there should be something to sort of connect, you know, your generation to the current generation, especially mm-hmm. as they start another fight for equality and consider joining the ATP. Mm-hmm. You know, why do you think that, you know, the, the mentorship programs in the past stopped existing, right? And I think that has a big impact on, you know, as I said, cause I'm, you know, in the locker room at the lunch table and I'm like, you don't know who that is? That's, I mean, that's Leslie Allen. Like before Zena Garrison and the, after I did, that was Leslie. It's like, oh, I never heard of her. I'm like, oh, okay, well you should, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Why do you think that that no longer exists? Cause to me, that's an easy one, right? Where you take a test before you get your tour card. You got to know where yeah. it came from, know how we got here to sort of appreciate the opportunity. I think um, having perspective and historical perspective is a powerful thing. And when you don't know the history, then people can tell you anything and they can treat you any way. Um, For instance, when the WTA was trying to start, Billy wanted to start it with the men, but the men were like, nah, we don't wanna do anything with y'all. So the fact that you may be thinking about joining up with the men in some capacity, you need to understand the history of, of what happened. And for me, I find strength in history because whenever I struggle and, you know, something is happening to me, um, I always think that someone else who came before me had it a lot harder. I have a coaster on my uh, desk where I am right now, and it's of Katherine Johnson. Her daughter gave it to me. Katherine Johnson from um, Hidden Figures, who was a big tennis fan, right? And um, it's her 100th birthday. So 
you know, I set my little, my little seltzer, my cup of coffee on there, but I see that. So anytime I'm having a little moment, I'm like, whatever you're going through, Leslie, is not as tough as what Catherine went through. So you can do this. <laughs> it, and it's the same as I think of Althea, as I think of Arthur. And when you have the information, it helps you because I knew Zena from the time, I've known Zena from the time she was 11. And one of our first interactions was at the French Open one year and me giving her some advice. And so she was like, oh, okay, I ain't going out like that anymore. Um, but um, I think it's important to know your history. So let me ask you this, Dan, because we, we, we mentioned, you know, the men and women potentially joining. Do you mm -hmm. think they should join? And I tell you sort of my perspective, right? From my time out there, I feel like the ATP, you know, it's like big brother, little sister, mm -hmm. right? in terms of the grand slams, you know, if they put a women's match on first and they put a men's match on second, then people might come early to watch the women's match, but they really come to see Novak or Roger Sack, who plays second, right? right. Um, I feel like if you join, there's a potential to get in the room and get talked over, right? Or perhaps lose a little bit of control. Um, but there is also a flip side. You know what I mean? There's a, there's a flip side, like stronger together, marketing opportunities get bigger, you know, broadcast dollars get bigger. But, you know, I worry that sort of just society, right? We talk about racism in society, but there's also still sexism, right? right. I worry that, you know, and I'm, I'm have only coached women, right? On a tour level. Mm -hmm. and so I'm a fan of women's tennis. And right. I worry that, um, you know, the product would get drowned out or lose some of its, I mean, you don't think it has power now. It'd have even less power in the room joined with, you know, the ATP. What do you think about right. that? Well, um, I think it all depends on who's in the room and what criteria is set if there was a merger. Um, because there was a time where they didn't really put women on center court. So the fact that we play on center court is, I mean, even in the finals, they might put you over on some side court and just play the men. So, <laughs> you know, that was a battle. I was reading somebody had written, you know, like one of the original nine had written about her playing in the finals of the French, like on some side court. Um, so we've made great strides and great progress. And in terms of the entertainment value for um, the fans, when you have men and women together, it just brings all the fans of women's tennis, men's tennis, and tennis in general is bigger. It is bigger. So I think if you're looking at it from that ability, yes, put them together. But in doing so, there has to be some strong criteria. And um, because not every, you know, we're at a, we're at a flashpoint now because the big four, they're not gonna be here forever. Some of the top women players aren't gonna be here forever. So it's an entirely new generation of names that the tennis public is going to have to be familiar with and who, who are gonna be the shining stars on either tour. So um, there, there, is, there is merit, as you say, there's risk. Um, but for me, it's all about who's, who's in the room because when you're the decision maker, you can control what, what's happening. Because we've seen stuff across all spectrums, stuff happens. And the first thing you say, who was in the room? Who thought that was a good idea? Hmm. You know, whatever it may be, so. Well, let me ask you this then, right? So you look at the Grand Slams and obviously the stadium's full and it's hard to know who came 
for the second match, who came for the first match, who came for the men's match that's followed, right? But if you look at like men's only events, like in Atlanta, mm-hmm. right? and you look at women's only events, right? Or if you look at Montreal versus Toronto, mm-hmm. and you see attendance lower in the women's only events, right? Like at a Strasbourg or whatever, right? And you see attendance higher at like Atlanta or Delray. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the men have a valid argument that, you know, we should get more prize money because more people come and watch us? And, and as evidence of that, look at the single gender tournaments as proof of that. And I'm not, again, yeah. I only coach women uh, yeah. today. Well, so I'm a fan of the WTA, but I'm just like that perspective is out, that thought is out there. Oh, the thought can be out there, but the metric is, did that person who came to the men's event enjoy their experience more than the person that came to the women's event? Because after all, we are entertainment. So if they are being entertained equally, then it's the same. Mm-hmm. It's, about, it's, it's about entertainment. And then now you can go through, you know, who has more stars in the game, who was in the field. There are a lot of variables that, you know, you're, it's hard to compare apples and oranges you know mm-hmm. it, it's it's different but it's all it's, <laughs> See, that, that, that's the board meeting right there right that's yeah. the board meeting where it was like yes it's gonna be back and forth yeah 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 on those so, types of decisions exactly. and, and and those and, and both sides have a valid argument yeah and i think that's the risk mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. but uh, together you're bigger men's tennis is bigger than quote men's tennis and women's tennis is bigger than women's tennis it's tennis so yeah introducing coco golf's signature shoe more than just a tennis shoe it's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette it's designed to enhance speed and power on the court the multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out the coco cg1 empowers you to dominate the game Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. So you talked about Althea Gibson. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you sort of talked about, you know, your relationship and knowing Zena since she was 11. Tell us about Althea, right? Because, you know, I went to FAMU, so she went to the same college I went to. I never had the opportunity to meet her, although, you know, she's a legend in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, but there aren't a lot of people, even that I know, other than like you, Billy, um, that actually had the opportunity to like really get to know her. Tell us about Althea. So um, I, I knew that Althea existed because we had a picture of her in our house autographed to my mother who was an ATA player. And there she sat on our little TV console back in the day. And the thing as a kid that I was most impressed with that her racket cover had her name on it. It said Althea Gibson. So mm-hmm. that's from a little girl just looking at a picture you know, and um, then the first time that I really remember meeting her or seeing her was at Dr. Johnson's camp. She came across the court to talk to us sitting on a bench. And I remember for me, and I'm tall, you know, my mother's tall, my dad's tall, but she just seemed to loom large, right? Just huge towering in my mind as like a 10, 11 year old, however I was. And I remember she had on penny loafers, brown, with a little, with a penny in it. And I just remember her coming up and saying like, hey champ to us, you know, and, and um, I don't remember anything else about that. 
so then I was invited to come to Sportsman's Tennis Club by Jim Smith in Boston. And it was uh, a black owned and still is a black owned uh, indoor tennis facility. And he invited me, Zena, Andrea Buchanan, Kim Sands to come and train with Althea. And I'm telling you, it was a life-changing weekend on so many different levels. And um, she said a sentence to me that, that certainly changed my life because when we walked into that, when I walked into that facility where I had played in ATA tournaments before, when I walked in, it wasn't the, can I help you? You know, which you get when you would come into predominantly white clubs, probably still to today, can I help you? It's, it's just a subtle thing, but you know, you know what that means. Like, what you doing in here? Mm-hmm. You know? And so, but instead, when I walked in <clears throat> at Sportsman, they said, hey, Leslie, how are you? How's your mom? Whatever, whatever. So there was that connection. And uh, the pros just happened to be pros of color that we knew. And so it was just a completely different world of tennis um, that I had never experienced. And Althea took us out trained us for about an hour, took a look, look, look. So brought us into one of those tables, sit at the table, it overlooks the court, you know the look. And so she asked each one of us, what do you think? What, what, do you, what, do you, what are you looking for? What, what do you think you're gonna do in tennis? What's your goal? So at this time, I was a rookie on, this, on the tour. So was Kim Sands. Uh, Zena was still playing juniors, but getting ready to go like junior Wimbledon, that kind of thing, to give you that perspective. So, um, I proudly said, uh, I want to be in the main draw of WTA events. That was my goal because I'd been in the qualifying. And so I thought to be getting in main draw, that's huge. So I thought that was a good thing. And, and you have to realize that I didn't play junior tennis because I didn't like it. I didn't compete junior. I didn't have any junior ranking. I was a walk-on at SC. I played at the bottom of the ladder. So it wasn't like I had all of these tennis credentials behind me where I would set spectacular goals. So I'm late to the game. So I think saying I'm going to be um, in the main draw of a WTA event is huge. Mm -hmm. And she looked at me and she was standing up and she spread her arms out and she said, with your wingspan, and she put her arms out wide like this, you need to think about winning WTA tour events. What? <laughs> so in that moment, um, I was like, oh, okay, first of all, this is a two-time Wimbledon and US Open champion thinking I can win a WTA tournament. That's huge, number one. Mm-hmm. And number two, oh, I need to change everything. Right. I need to up my game. I need to up my expectation. So she was a force that uh, some people just have the light come on them. When she came in, came into the room, she just... She just exuded positivity. She had a presence and um, you had to listen. It was, it was magnetic, it was compelling. And so that was that experience. And I was lucky to train with her for a little while and um, have her come to some of my matches. And, um, but that one sentence changed my life, which is why I do my win for life training with athletes because I know I could say one thing that could make them make that shift to be an even better version of themselves. It's funny you talk about that glow. Cause I say like, you know, right now, 
no matter who's in the in the way, no matter who's in the player lounge, when Roger comes through, mm-hmm. everybody get out the way. Yeah. Even Rafa yeah. and Novak. You know, <laughs> even when Roger comes through, Novak gets out the way. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Presence and this like glow. It's like he's just got like a cloud around him. You right. know, the boys' right. clothes fit all nice. So he's sort of, I understand what you're saying when you walk right. through, you know, the cafeteria at Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. And everybody's sitting there and you got tables on the left and the right and you got the yeah. hall and everybody kind of stop with their forks in their mouth and kind of take a peek. Yeah, like that's, that's Roger. That's Roger, right? And yeah. so it yeah. sounds like Althea had that same thing. Yeah, so, I mean, he had that same thing, but there was also, uh, because generations didn't know who she was. So when she would walk in, people would also have that, who the hell are you? Or... Mm-hmm. No, nah, we don't have a res- you don't have a reservation. You can't come in here, which is why she ultimately stopped going to the U.S. Open, being turned away at a restaurant once, saying, "No, sorry." Now wait a minute, now because I didn't know that <laughs> so she stopped going to the U.S. Open. You do you remember when they had the restaurant rackets, which was on the back side of the grand grandstand? Yeah. So I think it might have been she and Angela Buxton were going to go to lunch in there, and so they went in, you know, to to have lunch and you know, Buffy, who was somebody's, you know, cousin or niece or something was the hostess there. And um, so, you know, I'm sorry, you don't have a reservation, you can't come in. So it angered Althea and she, um, she, 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 she left. And never play US Open again? Not play, no, this was just there as a spectator, oh. as, as champion. So this was a, when she would, and they used to have a section called past champions that they would sit them in the corner of the U.S. Open. So mm-hmm. there she was with her, you know, her badge on that said, you know, past champion or whatever. And, um, you know, if you give your name at the U.S. Open and you're a champion of the U.S. Open two times, you know, you find a seat, you find somewhere for them to sit. Right. Uh, <laughs> you well, know. Yes, because one of the things that, I always notice is even let's say at the U.S. Open, right? 2018, mm-hmm. Sloan won mm-hmm. 2017, right? Mm-hmm. 2018, we go back. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I would like to see happen is more supplier and vendor diversity. Okay. Because one of the reasons why that, you know, the maitre d' or the host may not know Althea was because she wasn't black, right? And, right. but then again, I mean, shit, Althea was only black, so how could you not yeah. know her, right? Yeah. So, yeah. but I, I also feel like when I'm in venues and I'm not, you know, celebrity, you know, by any mm-hmm. means, but mm-hmm. after my player won a U.S. Open mm-hmm. and then, you know, I also got a replica trophy. Right. You should sort of kind of like have yeah. a, a little bit, you know what I'm saying? Right. And so I often feel like because there are no black vendors and suppliers or very few of them, then I often get my credential checked more often. Oh, uh, yeah. Or, you know, how you make that face? That's a given. That's <laughs> or or a given. I get my bag checked a little harder. I'm like, Bro. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this. yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. You know, you just go like, all right, here it is. And to the point where then when they see, because, you know, I've been going to the US Open forever. So it's, it's all about what letter is on your credential or what access you have. And so there's that, they're like, oh, well, well I don't know who you are, but you got this high level credential. So you must be somebody, you know, you, you get a little bit of that. But the other thing is, um, when when I when I played at the U.S. Open, there every vendor and every booth was 100% white. 
The only people that were people of color were the people picking up trash. Mm-hmm. So then uh, when I worked on the sponsor side of the game, I hired people in my booth that were diverse. Mm-hmm. And the only other place that had diversity was Andre Agassi's agent. His son was in the Nike booth. So imagine just being on the grounds and every vendor, every waiter, every everything is still not there's no diversity. So they changed vendors. And so then they began to hire more diverse people in all capacities. But in terms of um, utilizing diverse um, vendors, that wasn't a metrics as part of the the USTA. It it maybe is changing now. Um, Mm -hmm. But I mean, I ran the Arthur Ashe Endowment booth for years. And it was always interesting, the comments that we might get. And uh, one couple came up to the booth. The man obviously had had a few too many honey deuces. Oh, that's my drink. Woo! (laughs) Yeah, right? Woo! (laughs) So um, on this particular day, and I used to pay attention to have diversity within the booth, right? It's Arthur Ashe booth. It shouldn't really matter who's in there. We were raising money for the AIDS endowment. This particular day, it just happened to... um, be that everybody was a person of color. And the man at the booth, the man came up and he said, um, why are you all black? Yeah. And so, you know, I'm, I love these kind of questions. So I said to myself, I'm black because my mom and my dad is black. <laughs> and I turned to Kyle Copeland Muse. I said, why are you black? And she said the same thing. So we went around like that. So the girlfriend was like horrified, but, but that wasn't enough for him. And he was like, well, well, is this a school program, like a community service kind of a thing? And so like, I'm like, I'm a graduate of this USC, Kyle, I'm a graduate of Pepperdine. And somebody in there, one of the volunteers like had 10 degrees, you know, I have a master's in this, I have a master's in this. Like, what's your point? So it's a lot of times it's people's perspective. They don't, um, see people in color in leadership positions, which is why it's important to have diversity so that it wouldn't be a surprise. It would be more good to see you again. You know, let me buy my shirt. Let me support the endowment. So Mm. it's it's not a a big deal. Mm. This is the tennis.com podcast. I am your host, Kamal Murray, and we are here with a legend in the game, a mentor to many, Leslie Allen. We'll be right back. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, welcome back to the Tennis.com podcast. We are sitting here with a legend in the game, Leslie Allen. Leslie, thank you for being here. So you you gently touched on something a few minutes ago, and we talked about like the, the aura and the feel you have when you walk into tennis clubs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, historically, you know, Blacks weren't allowed to join tennis clubs, right? Blacks and Jewish people were not allowed to join tennis clubs. Right. And Jewish folks got together, right? And they have just a better history of sort of working together than, you know, sort of Black folks do. 
So they got together and they got their own, they built their own tennis club, right? So mm-hmm. you got Hillcrest in LA, you got York Rackets in Toronto. I mean, you have Jewish only clubs right. all across the country. Right. But no black clubs. But you and- know what? You did have black clubs. You did. Mm-hmm. You know, through the ATA, most cities, they and there were tens of thousands of people that were playing. And whether they were playing at HBCUs or at the black clubs, um, Shady Rest, Cosmopolitan, there mm-hmm. was that counterpart too. It's just mm-hmm. that a lot of times the white clubs and the quote Jewish clubs might have been side by side, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But because you didn't they didn't let black people in either of those locations, they had their own club somewhere. It just wasn't right there as prominent as maybe you saw the white clubs and the quote Jewish clubs. Mm-hmm. So I talked about like when, when I was a kid growing up and I used to walk into, you know, clubs in Chicago, mm-hmm. obviously that were, you know, predominantly white, all white owned. Yeah. There was this, this, this aura where you walk in and you feel like you can't sit your water on the table without a coaster or, uh, and it could be, you know, self-imposed, right? Sort of this uneasiness or discomfort, um, not feeling as welcome. And it wasn't like blatant, but it was always subtle. And I try to articulate it to people. Well, you know, obviously before George Floyd and before the whole BLM move, I would try to articulate it to people and they'd be like, no, nah, that's just you. Yeah. That's not, you know, that's not thing. So, yeah. so you talk about the sportsman's club in Boston, Mm-hmm. Um, that's sort of, you know, when I built my club here in Chicago, one of the things it was like, no, nah, this is come one, come all. You want to put your feet on the table. That's all right. We'll buy a new one next year. You know, they're, they're every kid that can't walk down the hallway without putting a hand on the wall. That's fine. We'll repaint it every year. Right. We're just going to plan on it. Um, but everybody knows each other's name and the kids are free to be kids. Mm-hmm. Right. Tell us about, cause I, I clearly do a bad job at articulating what that or that feeling is. Tell us about, see, can you describe that feeling of being a black person in a white club that, that you talked about didn't exist at the sportsman's club? What felt different? Um, you mean what felt different at sportsman's or what you would feel when you went anywhere else? What would you feel when you went anywhere else? So the generation, uh, my generation was taught you had to be twice as good. And you also were taught you had to be impeccable with your life skills, with your manners and everything, because people were gonna look for a reason to discount you. So as kids said or say, yeah, you knew you had to come correct. That was just it. So, um, you know, versus now, you know, kids feel like I can just come in any old way and just need get to deal with it, you know, which is a nice luxury to have. Um, but it's, it's representative of people's perspective. It's them not seeing you, it's not you. And that's what I always try and train my athletes is that you are brilliant, but others may not see it, you know, and that's their loss and their, their deficit. But, you know, when you're a person of color, you always have to code switch, which simply means there's a certain way that you and I are gonna talk. And then there might be a certain way that I need to talk in a different situation in the boardroom. And, um, so you knew when you walked in, um, you know, we, we at one year in housing in England, you know, back in the day when you would get housing, um, tournaments would sign up to, to house players. So small town, England, we're gonna, um, the woman was on vacation, her neighbor let us in, there were three of us standing there. So when she came home from vacation, 
you know, she knew she was going to have some international players. I know in her mind, she didn't expect there was going to be three black girls. Right. But when she came in, hi, I'm Leslie. I'm from New York. Hi, I'm Andrea. I'm from L.A. Hi, I'm Diane Morrison. I'm from L.A. And the woman looked at us and she said, oh, but you speak English so well. And so, you know, me, I'm like, I'm ready. Like, I'm like, well, we are from the United States of America and that is our primary language. So that might be well. But again, that was just not her expectation. So um, obviously the George Floyd situation uh, illuminated a lot of what we experience and feel as people as color. So you try not to have a chip on your shoulder, mm-hmm. but you also have like an antenna up, like, okay, there it is. You know, mm-hmm. whether you get accused of stealing a poster that you actually put up, you know, mm-hmm. where you got players to sign it because it was easy to say, oh, the black girl did it. Well, clearly you didn't know who the black girl was because I'm the one that put the poster up for the lady so the people could get the signatures, you know, so um, it's an interesting balance because I remember even talking to Sloan. Uh, I mean, the first time she got Win for Life training for me, she was about 14. And, and that's really just trying to help kids navigate mm-hmm. and have the skills to be able to do so. So she was playing in the garden exhibition and didn't play well. Um, but I said, you have to look at all the microaggressions that you had us getting here. When you came down in the hotel lobby, people didn't say good luck. They were like, can I help you? Where are you going? Oh, you're playing in the garden? Who are you? When you got here to the club, to the garden, can I see your badge? Are you supposed to be in here? You know, just pick, 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 pick. Versus your opponent just said, hi, here I am. Came downstairs, yep, everything's great. No, nothing bad ever happens to me. Okay, I'm gonna go out here and play tennis. Mm -hmm. You know, (laughs) a completely different mindset. So it's extra baggage that people of color carry. I mean, it's the same way for women. There are things that happen to women that men don't even think about, but that's extra baggage that you have. Um, That's just known. But at least now um, people are acknowledging that that exists and can try to try and uh, combat it. But, you know, some of my, my uh, mentees, one for life mentees, you know, it was sad that they were telling me some situations that were happening to them in tournaments. And I'm like, really, still, this is still happening. So they were sort of shocked that I could immediately tune into what they were saying about lines, people, bad calls or, mm-hmm. or whatever. And um, I said, you just have to have a plan to combat that. So it doesn't disrupt your play. And that's, that's what I said. And you talk about, you said the word microaggressions, right? And I try to articulate, you know, to folks, to, to win a grand slam, everything got to go right for two weeks. Mm-hmm. And it's the tennis part, who you're hitting with, all mm-hmm. that other stuff, right? But it's, it's, all, it's also what you said, the microaggressions, right? Because right. on your way to the court, you can get pissed off by somebody at the hotel, right? Exactly. And, and, you know, sometimes tennis players, we have a hard time, like, moving on. We sort of get mm-hmm. stuck. Right, mm-hmm. you could lose the match because of the way we were treated at dinner the night before, right? So I think that you know those microaggressions, you know, is, is, is well said because and it's hard if you think about the number of black folks who are other than Venus and Serena, mm-hmm. right, who have won Grand Slams, very few, mm-hmm. right? And part of it is all the microaggressions. You know, if you think about a one-week tournament, right, you got to win five matches. You know, mm-hmm. smaller venues, more. Mm-hmm. Interest- 32 draw by day two they know who you are right yeah. um 
and your hotel is probably two blocks away. Yeah. But at larger venues where there are more opportunities for things to go wrong or things to sort of, yeah. you know, pick, 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 right? I call it like death by a thousand paper cuts, right? right. Um, it's harder to sort of make it to the finish line because mentally you have to manage so much and to be right. so strong. Yeah. And it takes, you know, a lot of times, it, hopefully not, but it could be once in a lifetime where you get that two weeks mm-hmm. where just in a space. Yeah. that no one can sort of invade right? right and everybody around you is protecting you and can kind of see oh there's something at the corner that we won't let's, let's go this way right exactly. um, so that's why i would try to articulate how hard it is to win a grand slam period for anybody but yeah. also for like a minority player it, it is because that's that's just an additional burden and and just as you said when you would try and articulate microaggressions and people say oh you know you're overthinking it oh that's you or oh that didn't they didn't really mean that no, yeah, they did. No, you're not overthinking it. But I, and I think people people understand that, and it, and it happens in all kinds of ways. Because one year at Wimbledon, we had a, a craft tour who was a sponsor tour house, and so we hired um, I hired a housekeeper and a cook. So I was in the kitchen showing I don't know whoever I showing the person you know this or this is our schedule you know having a conversation a debrief. Now you're there, right? And so she looked at me and she said, are you the housekeeper? Mm. <laughs> so uh, the person that I worked for was in the room, happened to be a, a, a white person, Edie McGoldrick. And so she was like looking to see what is Leslie going to say, you know, and, and like, let me stop this because this could be a train wreck. And so she, I said, no, I, I'm the person that hired you. And then you know, we, we, we went on with it, but it was, it was, you know, and it was, it was innocent in a way, but if she was just trying to understand what, why are you telling me these things? Because I don't, I didn't think that the person that hired me looked like you. So in order for me to put you in perspective, I need to put you in the, in the housekeeper role mm-hmm. because I didn't see you in that way. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was all good. So it was funny. Uh, when I started coaching Sloan at the end of 15, went and played Auckland, first term in the year, and she won Auckland. Mm-hmm. And um, she won a tournament, obviously, right, about to take the picture. And they're like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Let's wait on Sloan's boyfriend. <laughs> it was me, right? Uh-huh. Boyfriend? Uh-huh. I would never date that skinny dude. And I was like, I-, I would never date you either. But it was not, <laughs> like, it was not the coach, right? Right, right. And then... A couple of weeks, uh, no, a month later, she won Acapulco. Mm-hmm. And it was another coach there who coached a male player. Mm-hmm. And it was like, hey, how's your mom? How's Sybil? And I was like, Sybil's not my mom, but she's great. Uh-huh. Like, oh, I thought you were Sean. I'm like, bro, you didn't see me for eight weeks in Carson. You just saw yeah. me in Auckland, Australia. How, how do you think I'm the brother? I'm like, nah, bro, I'm the coach. I just, and in women's, you got on-court coaching. So I'm like, come on, yeah. I don't been on there. Yeah, you know yeah. What I mean? I'm like, okay, not to go. So I get the whole, you know, mm-hmm. us in that environment, the whole mistaken identity or no, you can't, you know, I'm not used to seeing you in that space. So it's hard for me to just accept yeah. that you're the boyfriend, yeah. or the brother, or that kind of thing. Yeah. So I totally get that. So I want to touch on the ATA because you, you, you talked about coming up in the ATA and the very first time I hopped on the air, on an airplane to go play a tournament was for the ATA National. Really? Yeah. Which one? Uh, I think it was in four. No, it was in DC. Okay. Ooh, hot. Yeah. 
It was in DC. Um, it was one in Jackson, Jackson, Mississippi. That was one. Uh, and then Fort Lauderdale. But those are like the first three times I hopped on an airplane um, was to go play ATA Nationals. And I thought that that was one of the coolest experiences, um, you know, to see so many black folks playing. But also for the men's open, I was like, what, 12, 13, right? But at the time, the men's open, uh, the winner would get a wild card to the U.S. Open. Mm-hmm. Or the Qualies. Was it main oh, draw or Qualies? Qualies. Um, tell me about, A, the importance of the ATA, but also where we went wrong, right? Because we don't have the wild card anymore, right? If you win the men's open, you don't get the quality card anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think participation in the ATA is down, right? Popularity is down. Uh, self-admittedly, you know what I mean? I got to get my kids and start taking them back to the ATA, right? So I'm guilty of that as well. Tell me tell me, sort of the evolution of the ATA, how we got here. I think it's on an interesting arc. And so I'm someone that grew up around ATA tennis and my mother was the one that played and we would go to the nationals, which would be at a, <clears throat> at a historically black college. And so it was just black excellence, black tennis. It was not unusual. And it was also uh, the time where, and, and you, I would hear, you know, when you're a kid in the car, the adults talk in coded language, but as I now reflect on those conversations, I understand what they're saying. They would say things like, um, well, the only two black people in the tournament in the US LTA tournament, they played each other. Okay, so we know draw fix, whatever. Um, but it was a great place of, of people and tennis. And when the USTA began to, when tennis sort of went public, a lot of people, you only played in the ATA because either you couldn't, they wouldn't let you play in the other tournaments or it was just such an unpleasant experience. So the top players played in the ATA. So it was great. Mm -hmm. Then um, the transition was you stopped playing ATA tournaments and you played USTA tournaments. So level on one level fell off, but we still had the wild card that you could play and get it. And I, and I think it kind of went away one year when the, the ATA moved their date and their date conflicted with when the U S open qualifying was. So if you won the ATA, the qualifying had already started or something. So that was sort of how it went, went away per se. <clears throat> also, there wasn't uh, probably stringent um, enforcement of whatever rules of how you had to support a few ATA tournaments when you, and then play the nationals and then get the wild card. Cause some people were just showing up for the nationals to try and get the wild card. Absolutely. So, so, so that was a little bit of a, a administrative issue um, and now there are players that have never even heard of the ATA or never even played in the ATA, but I think it's, it's coming back around because the same sort of may I help you kind of experiences this, that you've had, um, or that, you know, that kids are still having, you don't get that at an ATA tournament. And so the championships just finished up. And I'm sure for those athletes, if you figure you're in a support where the majority of the time you're in the minority, but to show up at a tournament where you are in the majority uh, and people have like experiences, um, that's an empowering thing nonetheless. So it's, it may not even be so much about tennis as it is just the holistic nature of being in that environment. And you may not be the best player, 
but you'll see better players than you. So, you know, you can, and you'll see better players that look like you, which mm. is also really, really important and empowering. And for me, it was a great um, training ground. Cause as I said, I was late to tennis and I want you to listen to this schedule that I had. I would go and play an ATA tournament. We would maybe start Friday, play Friday, Saturday, Sunday. This is when I was in college. So I'm still learning my game. So I'd probably win the ATA tournament. And then I would go to a USTA tournament, like a junior level or 21 and under, whatever it was. And I would play that tournament. But I would be out of that tournament by Wednesday for sure, maybe Monday, maybe Tuesday. But then I could go to the next ATA tournament and play on the weekend. So I was playing two tournaments a week. So I was getting some match play in. Um, and so it provided a great um, sort of training ground for me to, to build my confidence, build my game. Um, but it's, it's highly unusual to be able to play two tournaments in one week, you know? Mm. <laughs> yeah, now nah, they, they don't let you can't enter. You can't well, be entered in two times. My point is I could have entered because they wouldn't have known about the, about the ATA tournament, right. but my game wasn't so strong in the USTA events that I was, could be guaranteed. I knew I was going to be out of the USTA event before the ATA event started, you mm. know? So mm. it would have been a summer of just playing uh, one tournament on Mondays or Tuesdays and being done versus a summer of mm -hmm. getting some results on the weekend, going in better competition during the week, better you know competition on the weekend so it was a funny cycle but it was helpful for it was it was helpful for me you know <laughs> well you are watching you are listening to the tennis.com podcast i'm your host kamal murray we are here with leslie allen we'll take a quick break Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And welcome back. This is the Tennis.com podcast. I'm your host, Kamal Murray. We are here with Leslie Allen. And Leslie, I'm, you know, before we wind down, we just talked about sort of your, your regimen, right, and your schedule and your game. Uh, and in 1981, which I the year after I was born, right, and I was in Chicago. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Okay. I'm just right. saying, hey, look, you look good, right. girl. Don't worry. You look good. You, you carry well. <laughs> But in 81, you became the first black woman to win a tournament since Althea, right? Mm -hmm. And you won yeah. the Avon Championships in Detroit. Right. Which, close to Chicago. Um, in Chicago, we had a similar event, which was the Virginia Slims, mm -hmm. right? At the UIC Pavilion. And right. then I think it became taboo to market cigarettes to women, mm -hmm. right? Lost the sponsorship. Right. Um, Ameritech came in, it was called the Ameritech Cup. Mm -hmm. And they got bought by SBC, right? Yep. Yep. Probably the new CEO probably wasn't a tennis fan, right? Got rid of that. And they got bought by AT&T, et cetera. Um, but Detroit is also, like Chicago, like a great sort of minority mecca, right? Mm -hmm. Of tennis. You got Palmer Park there. You got the Motor City Tennis Club. You talk about these, you know, sort of organizations there. Um, you know, here... You know, I'm trying to like, or next week we have some WTA 125s and then 250 right after because I had the opportunity to be a ball boy for Pam Shriver, 
Uh-huh. Chanda. Um, Zena. Uh-huh. Lori. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's where I got my first kiss. Robin Givens kissed me on my cheek. She she got up from the expensive seats, uh-huh. left her purse. <laughs> I chased her down. I was like, hey, Miss Givens, you, you left your purse. Uh-huh. She kissed me right here. I don't think I washed my cheek for like two weeks. <laughs> um, but like the opportunity to see it, Right, made me sort of intrigued by the sport, you know, because primarily I grew up watching basketball, you know, Chicago Bulls, Michael mm-hmm. Jordan, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what what happened to sort of that Avon tournament that was in Detroit, uh, as well as the you know sort of Ameritech Cup? You know, it seems like indoor tennis in these sort of urban cities just mm-hmm. sort of disappeared. Yeah, uh, the tour used to have a lot of in- indoor events and. Um, that particular tournament and a lot of the initial tournaments were run by individuals so these were entrepreneurs that were willing to risk a lot to to, for organizations to have it and in that same time period um uh, the agencies img's octagons of the world were buying up events because then it became they could be a full service agency so to speak they can say we can give you wild cards in these tournaments we can make have you make appearances at these tournaments and get you ex sponsors so it became part of a uh, a package deal so in doing so like the Detroit tournament i think i don't even think they sold it i think they just gave it away to another entrepreneur and it moved i don't know where it moved somewhere you know but then eventually off the calendar because it became a chase for the dollars mm-hmm. um Who's going to be the next? Here's a week on the calendar. It has value. Who is going to be the next sponsor or person to pony up the money? And so that's really how the indoor tournaments kind of went away or that that circuit. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just they just moved to the point where there are not a lot of tournaments, you know, in the U.S. Can, can I just ask you a totally off topic question? Mm-hmm. Did, you, yeah. did, did you ever play Tri-City? All in the, the time. ADA? All I played, the time. So I grew up in Cleveland as well. So at Forest City Tennis, yeah. Um, I mean, that's where I hit my first tennis balls and I would play Tri-City. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, the Tri-City is, so for those who are listening, Tri-City is like a three-way sort of uh, weekend in the summer where Detroit, you know, black tennis play, black tennis club, Detroit, yeah. uh, Cleveland and Chicago. Right. Sort of rotate city to city for this sort of, you know, big trophy, right? And whoever wins the trophy that year wins the most matches, right? And it's social, it's competitive. It's like a reunion kind of thing. So we hosted Tri-City in Chicago, I think last year. Yeah. Um, But no, Tri-City was definitely one of the, you know, one of like a big thing growing up where you got Mm -hmm. to sort of see uh, folks. And it was actually my first time where I saw a lot of black doctors, Mm -hmm. right? Because a lot of these black tennis clubs Black doctors, black lawyers, business people, all that kind of thing. That was the first time I saw a lot of black professionals show Mm -hmm. up in a convertible Mercedes and everybody's flossing. Everybody, like, you know, got their little feet on. They search up bikini. They they got the Mercedes. Yeah. Black folks living like this in Detroit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so. No, uh, it's it's so true because I can remember there was a gentleman, uh, James Malone. He, at each evening function, he would change his outfit during the function. That's how bad he was, you know? Oh, so yeah. as a kid, and I'm like, wow, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you've been very generous with your time. I don't want to continue to hold you hostage. I know you got to get your day started. But tell me about 
um, the curriculum. You mentioned how, you know, Sloan had been exposed to your curriculum back when she was 14 years old. Mm -hmm. But tell us about your Win for Life curriculum. So it, it came out of, um, it's, it started more with a focus on introducing athletes to the careers behind the scene in pro tennis. And this was pre 9-11 where we had much more access to bring athletes behind the scenes. Um, but I wanted it to be a situation that if I'm bringing someone back there, that they are impeccable. They know they're dressed right, they speak well, you know, they're prepared. Um, so I stopped so much shifting to the doing behind the scenes as it is really seeing one with kids being so myopic in training, with kids being so focused on I'm trying to be a pro, um, some being homeschooled and not having good social interactions. I saw that there was a need for them to start to develop life skills early because most of them, if you're in tennis, you're probably going to go the college route, but you also need to be prepared and know how to be an effective, functional person on a team in college and in life. So all the skills that um, I teach them um, help them in life. And um, what's interesting is a lot of times people will tell you what you need to do. You need to speak to the coach. You need to present your best self. You need to do this. You need to do that. And the kids aren't going to say, excuse me, how do you do that? Mm. They're going to get that message you need to do. So I break it down in granular fashion that this is how you do each skill. And I equate it to you have a toolbox, just like for tennis. You can decide, you know, am I going to hit a drop shot? Am I going to hit a lob? Am I going to hit a whatever? You got a lot of variety in your toolbox. So depending on the situation, you hit a certain ball. And in life, you have to have a lot of different tools to show your best self in the world. And the more prepared and more tools you have, the better that you can do. And, you know, one of my kids, he, he just got like $250,000 worth of scholarships mm. from merit scholarship, academic, athletic, and community scholarships. So it's really, you know, I'm like you, I'm a coach. I love to see the growth, to see the light come on. And so to see a kid go from a scared to say anything about themselves, to be able to articulate uh, what they do and that, oh yeah, I, I, um, I make Lego parts from a, um, uh, a 3D print printer and I sell them to Germany <laughs> for a Lego contest. Okay, that's as, and I had to translate directions in Mandarin, by the way, you know, but it's how to tell your story to go right. from in the beginning, like, um, I would like to go to your college and I would be good on your team to being able to articulate that story or whatever the situation, you know, to understand about gratitude. It's all based to make it easy. Um, the core things are use the four Ds. The kids call it D to the fourth power, desire, determination, discipline, dedication. If you do that, you're gonna win for life and you can always check and see how have you done on a particular task because you ask yourself, did you go D to the fourth power? Mm. So, so everything that they're learning at a young age, 13, 14, they'll use it when they're 24, 34, 44, you know, showing gratitude. So that's my passion is to, for them to, not to give them a list of this is what you do, or these are questions you ask a coach, or this is how you start a conversation. But when you understand why you do something, then you're able to continue to grow and develop and do it. So. 
Mm-hmm. If you could tell, it's my passion. But and and it really stemmed from the days when I was playing, and I never saw anybody that looked like me behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to initially build a group that if you tell me how many you need, okay, boy or girl, no problem. I can re- make some recommendations. So, um, but my athletes, um, and they've been uh, high performance. Some have been NJTL level, entry level, but still today they use those skills, which is pretty, pretty wild to hear them, to hear them talk about it. You know, you, know, you talk about like those skills and even as you're in the process, you know who had the pedigree to sort of get recommended for an opportunity that might come up. So I got a call last November mm-hmm. and uh, Naomi was looking for an assistant mm-hmm. and I was able to recommend one of my kids right. who had just graduated from Howard, was sitting mm-hmm. at home without a job and now right. she went for Naomi. So that, yeah. that is what we talk about, you know, not going pro in tennis, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of doing the right thing, developing the skills so that when that opportunity comes up, mm-hmm person that you stood in front of for 14 years who was coaching you knows oh no I could depend on this one she's solid right because really the job is yours anyway right when I call you and say hey such and such is looking for this Mm -hmm. job is yours right um because they call for the recommendation so that was sort of like a really uh um uh rewarding sort of day for me because Mm -hmm. yeah she didn't go pro it's hard to make a pro but to be able to bring more blacks into this space Exactly. Because you know how you you ask about the situation of vendors and what I tell the the athletes is whatever whatever you're interested in, there's a job for you in in your sport if you want to stay in the sport. Because, you know, you don't tell kids, oh, you're probably not going to be pro. I just try and show them a wider scope that what goes on behind the scenes so that they can be interested and also demystify how do you figure out what college you go to. And don't just sit around in your senior year waiting for USC to recruit you because as I tell them, if they're not talking to you in ninth grade, you ain't going, you know? <laughs> so, so, so you mentioned USC, right? Mm-hmm. How did you go from a walk-on mm-hmm. in college to 17 in the world on a tour? Okay, so <laughs> it was, my ascent in tennis was continual, right? So. Um, I was a walk on at the bottom of the ladder, but I worked hard and I didn't have a good serve at that time, but I stayed after practice and I rode uh, two buses in Los Angeles, which for those of you who don't know, if you ride a bus in, in Los Angeles, that's just tragic that you don't have a car, you know, <laughs> versus our culture in LA, everybody, it's a, got car, a car. it's a car culture, everybody has a car. So when you don't, that's a problem. But to go and practice at an indoor club or to get paid two or three dollars an hour to hit with people. So it was really hard work and continuing to grow and develop my game because uh, in college I was a baseline player. And I recently found some letters that I'd written my mother. And literally in this letter, you know, we play it says we played whatever San Diego State or whomever. And I wrote in the letter, I went to the net two times. You know, so it's crazy because. In my era, it was serve and volley. And in order for me to become a better player, I had to learn how to volley and learn how to serve better. So it's unusual that a professional athlete would be continuing to learn skills as they played on the tour, but I, but I did. And I just started at the bottom, grinding, grinding, grinding. And, and my goal was, I was too embarrassed to say that I wanted to be a professional because mm-hmm. I knew I didn't have a professional's game at that point. 
So then I flipped it to, I want to see how good I could be. Mm-hmm. So then that was always something that I was chasing, that I could get better, I could get better, I could get better. Mm-hmm. And so fortunate for me, all of the off the court stuff, not so much the training, but just the interaction, that was easy. You know, I was confident in that. Where I was less confident was when I got on the court because I wasn't used to it. But um, so as I look at young people today that are really confident on the court, mm-hmm. I want them to be as confident off the court um, because there's so many more opportunities. You're only going to play for a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could be an anomaly like like Serena or like Roger. If you are, you don't have to worry. You're going to have more money than you need. But the average player is going to need to do something else. Right. And you don't want to be 25, 30, trying to learn how to you know, write a thank you note or something like that. Well, you know, that that's interesting because now we see a lot of people, you know, you, you talked about, I just wanted to be as good to see how good I could be or be as good as I could be. And we see mm-hmm. a lot of people now who went to college mm-hmm. and are now having success on a tour, like Mackie, you know, like Mackie, yeah. like uh, Jim Brady, like mm-hmm. Steve Johnson, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? So, yeah. so the college is not a curse as it no. used to be, yeah. right? John Isner, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Brandon Nakashima, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? So like college is not a curse. And I think if you go there, like you said, with the right attitude about, hey, you know what? I would love to play pro, but you know, right now I'm just trying to be as good as I can be. And then, you know, people just start to, it's funny. So uh, there was an indoor tournament here in Chicago, the men's uh-huh. the plays, the indoor championship they played here and UVA practice mm-hmm. at my facility. And I was watching, and Brandon at this time played four. Uh-huh. Okay. The mm-hmm. fall before he turned pro, he this was in the fall. He turned pro in January. He played number four. Mm-hmm. All right. And then I ended up coaching him the next summer in world team tennis. Right. So I'm like his life changed in a matter of nine months. Right. But I remember watching, you know, all the 10 guys on the team hitting. And he was the one that stood out. And I never knew who the boy was. Mm-hmm. I wasn't even, I was just like, okay, these dudes, they better pick up the Gatorade bottles yeah. off the yeah. court when they get done. You know what I mean? Because yeah. you know, yeah. us tennis players, we can leave a court dirty after we practice, right? Right. So, but of the kids out there, I was like, that boy can play, right? And then didn't know January he turned pro, right? See him at the Indian Wells Challenger, get all the way to the semis of the finals, and then I'd be, he'd be on my world team tennis team. So, agree. That attitude of, I just want to just continue to improve and get, you know, get as good as I could be. That's the attitude the players have to have now, especially if they end up spending a year or two in college, you know? So. And I think, I think what college gives them is a chance is that maturation because, you know, life on the tour is hard and it's mm-hmm. rough. And particularly if you've gone from somebody who's had success as a junior, which means you're going deep in the tournament into Thursday, Friday, you know, Saturday, semis, whatever. And now you come out on the pros and you might be playing and qualifying and you could be done that week before the tournament even starts. And now you got to wait another week before you can play another match. Well, so what's funny is, Leslie, somebody lost in qualities in Montreal, uh-huh. right? They come in to play our 125 hill Monday. There you go. There you they go. show up early and uh-huh. with the COVID protocol, we can't allow them on the site until mm-hmm. Saturday. Mm-hmm. So they text and text, hey, can we get a court? I'm like, yeah, not till Saturday. Mm-hmm. Can we get a hitter? I said, I can have a hitter meet you at a park somewhere but you know you talk about you just mentioned the the grind of right. early mm-hmm. gotta go to a next city can't go there until four or five days from now now i gotta figure it out where do i just go and camp out yeah 
for a week and be homeless for four or five days, right? Yeah. And to do that for six months, and this is not even saying any COVID protocol is tough. So I always say to the athletes that college prepares you for the tour. At least I tell my one for life athletes that because in addition to hitting the ball, there's so many other things you have to say. And that's when I bring up what Billy said to me, the sponsors, the fans, um, all of that. And you have to deal with that on your worst day. And, you know, so, so college gives you the maturity and you also get a chance to have fun at, at school, you know, mm-hmm. to learn, but to have fun. And that's a good way. If you go to a tournament and you blow up, okay, fine. Then, you know, maybe it's time for you to turn pro, but until that happens, do both. And you know what's funny, Leslie, some of these players that come from small markets where they don't mm-hmm. have a ton of people in their market, they, they probably have pro potential. Mm-hmm. They don't have a ton of other kids in their market mm-hmm. to hit against. Right. Sometimes when you go to college and you got eight, seven other girls on your team or guys mm-hmm. on your team mm-hmm. that were also top 50 in the country. Exactly. And you get 20 hours a week on court hitting with those guys mm-hmm. and 20 hours of coaching at school. Right. Right. Sometimes that's all a player needs. Sometimes players have the skill set, they got the right. strokes, they got the game, they got the discipline, but they don't have the hours. Mm-hmm. It ain't bad to go to a school to just get the hours, right? And if you got the talent and you add the hours, you're gonna make it. You know what I'm yeah. saying? So that's sort of what I what I look at a lot, especially a lot of minority kids. Mm-hmm. Oh, so we may definitely. not have had could couldn't afford the 20 hours a week that some of the rich kids got, mm-hmm. right? You go to college and get the 20 hours with the other kids, then yeah. Yeah. you know, sometimes that's all you need. Yeah. I, I, I agree that that, you know, college is a great transition to, to the pros now because it's it's competitive out there on the tour and it's competitive in college. Um, and you know, there's no better time than college tennis. Mm. It was a good time for me. <laughs> I went to the HBCU, so I had a good time. Yeah, so you had a really good time. I was too busy focusing on I got to get better, so I, I can't have as much fun as I want to. But <laughs> uh, Well, thank you, Leslie. You've been very generous with your time. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This is the Tennis.com podcast. I'm your host, Kamal Murray, and we have just spent uh, some very valuable time from you know somebody who is well-respected, somebody that when you see her coming, you know you're going to, you're going to get some advice. You're going to get a question. How are you doing? Well, are you doing this? Well, you need to make sure you do that. It ain't going to be a, hey, how you doing? That's great. See, you no, it's not going to be that. It's get ready. It's going to be a follow-up. It's going to be some follow-up. Get, get ready to be challenged. And I appreciate you always challenging me uh, and spending time with me. So thank you once again for spending an hour with me from a yeah. distance. I want you to get a theme song. You need to have a banging theme song for your podcast. Well, you know, they're going to add it in, you know, when they produce this thing and add the juice on the front of it. Yeah, you know. bump, 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 you know, come on. Oh, yeah. this, this year, it's, it's okay. Next year, okay. you know, we're going to really ramp it up. You know, it's okay. but, you know this year, you know. All <laughs> so right. There'll be a little bit of production added to this by the time it comes out. Okay. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Leslie. You're quite welcome.